there is something around the fact that good TikTok uh, content tends to be really, really personal. A, a little too personal at times. Um, I'm actually, something I'm really keen on is like the lifelong digital footprint of Gen Z is going to be the first to really have that lifelong digital pr- footprint. I've been on social media platforms since I was like nine. And TikTok, like no other platform, makes people compelled to share very personal information, probably because you're consuming content mostly from strangers. So you assume that the content you post will mostly be seen by strangers. So people, and also just the virality aspect of it, the instant gratification, people will feel a little too compelled to share a lot, which is probably gonna bite them in the butt later. But to your point, there there certainly needs to be a rule around drawing a line for, for, in my opinion, when someone's a minor. Um, So there was a story around a woman, Lexi Hammond, who had a job offer rescinded because of something she posted when she was 17. Uh, And that struck me as completely wrong. It's like, look, like your brain's not fully formed until you're in your 20s, actually. So by that standard, maybe we should raise the... I think it's what, the 25? Yeah, 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 the age. But certainly when you're 17, it's like you can say whatever you want when you're 17. And in my mind, like you should not have to have that called out for the world X years later. Uh, That there, I mean, that there are... To, to me, like, a, you're right, like, that there, there's going to be a massive fear uh, for people who um, try and step into the public eye. Yeah, I mean, we're all going to have to adapt because it's, it's kind of in the same way that celebrities or you know, public figures have this media trail that follows them. Now, the indivi- every individual is also going to have the same thing in the way that yeah, p- the media pinpoints um, public figures and such for these things. It's, we're all going to have that type of footprint. This week on board with TikTok influencer Jules Turpak. What the heck did they talk about at the White House, the Ukraine briefing, Hunter Biden's laptop, the future of media, and more this week on forward with special guest Jules Turpak, the news act. Welcome back to forward and this time we have an incredibly special co-host. Jules Turpak is here with us today, replacing Zach. Zach is fired. Bye, Zach. Jules is the new Zach. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mostly kidding. Uh, but Jules Turpak, for those of you who don't know her, uh, she's a major social media influencer with hundreds of thousands of followers on TikTok. She's been creating really informative, incisive, pieces on the digital landscape and one of the reasons she's here with us today is that she was part of this fabled white house briefing for social media influencers on uh the war in ukraine yes i was and there was definitely a lot of different media on this um i think it felt a lot more sensational than people who utilize the app would actually think and also thank you for having me. Um, but I would definitely like to talk about why the media ran with that story. Um, I think it's kind of died down a little bit now, but it was actually crazy to me how long 
that was a story in the media for like over a week. I think it was about eight days. You know it's a big story when SNL decides to parody it as their cold open. Uh, so why do you think this did take over the headlines for so long? I think the biggest misconception is that TikTok is only a dancing app. And it definitely started as that. It started as Musical.ly and then formed into TikTok. And Musical.ly, of course, was focused on music, lip syncing, dancing. Um, but a lot of people who are on the platform now don't recognize what it is today. It's legitimately come a general media source, just like in the way that on the Fox News Network or on NBC, there is the news segments, but there's also The Masked Singer and there's also America's Got Talent where people are singing, dancing and eating fire. It's the same thing with TikTok. There is a wide array of media now. So there are freelance journalists on that, the platform. There are journalists who were, had worked for vetted, vetted legacy media sources who now utilize the platform in a more short form way. And a lot of people don't understand this if they're not on the app. And it's a way that it's the media source that kids are clicking on first when they're unlocking their phones. And it's where they're getting all of their information. I think TikTok has it's surpassed um, Instagram and Gen Z users. It's surpassed YouTube in watch time in, term, well, in terms of how much time is spent on the app. This is where people are getting their information and worldview. I think, I believe it was Fox News. It was just, yeah, Jesse Waters. Um, referred to TikTok as where like the Tide Pods situation happened, which is like synonymous with Gen Z. People are like, oh, they ate Tide Pods, which was actually like, I feel like six or seven years ago. And it was on YouTube around the time when YouTube was starting to be looked at as also a general media source. So it's just like all, all these kind of misconceptions about the app right now. And I think that's what really did it. So wait, yeah. wait, wait. I so know. You're, you're, there's so a you're lot. saying that you're saying that legacy media, um, just had their minds so blown by the fact that the White House was doing a TikTok-centered briefing mm -hmm. because they have this out-of-date notion of what TikTok is? That, but there, there's also the, the side of it that I understand. So I know Russia had actually paid influencers to, like there was a scripted messaging almost, and that they were on TikTok reciting this information. So a lot of people thought that this was a similar scenario, but it, it was not. So we weren't paid. Um, we weren't pushed to post after we came with like equipped with questions that we did have to send before and like they had to approve. I don't know if anyone's got denied, but we came with questions. It was like any traditional press briefing. So they kind of like prefaced with some um, initial remarks, but then it was just question and answer the entire time. And the, we weren't supposed to record the, the whole thing, but someone did. And the Washington Post got a hold of the recording. So the whole recording is online too. So it was just interesting. Yeah, a lot of the coverage just kind of denied all of those little aspects of it and just ran with the headline of TikTok, dance app, influencers, all this different stuff. Well, the, this is something I'm sure we're going to return to, which yes. is uh, the media narratives around this. But back to TikTok. So yeah. there are folks, I used to have uh, a joke where I said like TikTok uh, when Instagram's too intellectual for you. <laughs> that was a joke. Yeah, I was gonna say is Instagram. In <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I hope that's a joke. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, but one of the stories I will share is that uh, I was talking to a 22 year old young woman mm -hmm. uh, about democracy reform and the Ford Party, and then she said, "Have you talked to?" TikTok political influencers. Mm -hmm. And she said that's where she and her friends get most of their news and points of view. For sure. 100%. Which is what you were saying right now. Yeah, and the, there was 30 of us there. I would say 
upwards of 10 to 15 of those that were there, yeah, were freelance journalists who, um, one person I really like to call out is Aaron Parnez. He's hour by hour reporting on the situation in Ukraine and Ru- between Ukraine and Russia, like literally hour by hour, super passionate. He has family that's from Ukraine, everything. And he's doing, there's so many of the freelance journalists that were there who are doing the due diligence and hard work of any other journalist. Um, so it's kind of unfortunate that people boil it down to the name of TikTok and the preconceived notions of that. Um, there were definitely some creators there that were uh, more lifestyle-like, which definitely confuses people. A lot of the media was running with maybe dance videos from different people. Um, but what to know about TikTok and just how kids and not even kids, just like younger adults too are consuming media today is like they want to follow people who also they maybe aspire or relate to their lifestyle as a whole. So yes, I don't think uh, maybe a dance video here and there really knocks someone out as um, not credible in their other type of content. It's just a piece of their content and people just like to follow these people who, yeah, they have like share their holistic life and they can aspire to. So it definitely I, I can understand why people are like, well, why are these lifestyle creators there, maybe? But um, that's basically why people are drawn to them. Yeah, that there are people who can post different types of content, uh, mm-hmm. and it, it doesn't necessarily diminish their capacity to add value, especially 100%. if they have a huge audience. Because the fact is, and, and this is where TikTok actually is ideal, now, certainly people want to be able to consume uh, entertainment mm-hmm. in, in different ways. And I now know some young people who just turn on TikTok is the first app, uh, and then they'll get entertainment, but they'll also get some uh, information. Uh, and and sometimes it can be from the same person. So I, I'm going to share my experience with TikTok, which by the way, if you're listening to this, I, I am on TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> Follow, plug. Plug. Yes. Oh, well, the, so I, I started out on TikTok during the presidential where my team said, hey, uh, think that you actually could perform well on this. Um, so let's give it a try. And then we did a few videos that <laughs> did really well. Um, so I also have, you know, a few hundred thousand followers on TikTok, which, um, there was a period when I might've been one of the sole political figures. Now I've been joined by a bunch of others. Yeah. There is something around the fact that good TikTok, uh, content tends to be really, really personal. Like, like you're going to feel like you know someone because you're going to see them talking, dancing, like it kind of has to be intimate. A, a little too personal at times. Um, I'm actually, something I'm really keen on is like the lifelong digital footprint of Gen Z is going to be the first to really have that lifelong digital pr- footprint. I've been on social media platforms since I was like nine. And TikTok, like no other platform, makes people compelled to share very personal information, probably because mo- you're, you're consuming content mostly from strangers. So you assume that the content you post will mostly be seen by strangers. So people, and also just the virality aspect of it, the instant gratification, people will feel a little too compelled to share a lot, which is probably gonna bite them in the butt later. But to your there, point, there, yeah. there certainly needs to be a rule around uh, drawing a line for, for, in my opinion, when someone's a minor. Um, so there was a story around a woman, Lexi Hammond, who had a job offer rescinded because of something she posted when she was 17. Uh, and that struck me as completely wrong. It's like, look, like your brain's not fully formed until you're in your 20s, actually. So by that standard, maybe we should raise the... I think it's, what, the 25? Yeah, 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 the age. Yeah, but yeah. certainly when you're 17, it's like, you can say whatever you want when you're 17. And in my mind, like you should not have to have that called out for the world 
X years later. Uh, that there, I mean, that there are, to to me, like a you're right, like that there there's going to be a massive fear uh, for people who um, try and step into the public eye. Yeah, I mean, we're all going to have to adapt because. It's kind. It's kind of in the same way that celebrities or you know public figures have this media trail that follows them. Now, the indivi- every individual is also going to have the same thing in the way that yeah p- the media pinpoints um, public figures and such for these things. It's we're all going to have that type of footprint, um, which is crazy to think about. And look, like I I'm not like a TikTok hype person. Like I have a lot of um, my disdain towards TikTok. There, it's done great things for me. It's why I'm sitting here now. Like I've gotten great reach and without TikTok, no other platform would have given me a lot of the opportunities that I've been able to receive. But also, um, I openly critique the platform, uh, coincidentally on the platform a lot of the times. Um, I've had friends that do so and they've literally had their accounts banned. That's not cool. Which is crazy. So like, I totally understand also, yeah, the disdain towards TikTok, um, and obviously it's owned by by dance which is in china everything um so there, there were those critiques that i'm like okay i understand um but there's definitely more nuance into what goes on on the platform um yeah this podcast is sponsored by helix sleep I've always been a mattress guy because I figured if I'm going to do something for up to eight hours, maybe I should do it right. And Helix Sleep lets you do it right by sending you one of 20 unique mattresses that's tailored for you. I took the Helix Sleep quiz, takes only a couple minutes, and I was matched with a Helix Dawn mattress because I wanted something that felt firm and I sleep on my back. That mattress is exactly what I needed, but strangely enough, my kids now seek out that mattress in the house and want to sleep on it even though I did not order it with them in mind. If you have a high quality mattress, it is a game changer, a huge difference maker. Don't take my word for it. Helix has been awarded the number one mattress picked by GQ and Wired Magazine. It is even recommended by multiple leading chiropractors and doctors of sleep medicine as a go-to solution for improving your sleep. Helix is offering up to 30% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash yang. That's helixsleep.com slash yang. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. So do you think that the White House... TikTok influencer briefing was one, a good idea, and two, well executed? I think so. I 100% think it was a good idea in theory. I did think it was weird. So a lot of the people came from Gen Z for Change, which is an organization of like uh, like 500 creators, I believe. I didn't, I wasn't invited through that. I was invited through an individual who just like helps with youth insights within the White House. I, they didn't seem to really, yeah, maybe vet the individuals there. Yes, they they like trusted, like oh, they, they're in the reporting realm or they they have an audience that really trusts them. It did feel a little too casual, I would say. Like it was very question and answer, but I, even like a Jen Saki at points was like, uh, I feel like comfortable, like I can nerd out here, like a little too com- like. 
just casual, friend-like, and obviously we're there for a very serious reason, and that's what the focus should have been in the media. I totally understand the initial coverage and the initial like restraint towards what was going on, but the big focus there was the U- uh, Ukraine and Russia situation, which should should have been more covered in the media. And the information they provided us was actually very, very strong. So and um, something that we can talk about here today, too. Yeah. So le- what did they share with you that would be news to folks? Uh, and it, it's tough for people, I think, because you wake up and the first thing you do is you, you look up what's happening in Ukraine. Yep. And every social media platform is a very, very deep well. You could spend essentially your entire day uh, digging in. Now, so what did they present to you all? And and, uh, did they have information that might not have been uh, in the general public? Yeah, so all the information, from my understanding, listening to briefings and stuff had been said. Yeah, it's out there somewhere within the media or within their uh, press briefings. But they kind of, not that they intentionally pushed three main points, but the three main points that I got out of it were, of course, that they want to de-escalate the situation as soon as possible. The second was that during the, this was now a week ago, a week and a half ago. So before, when this press brief, when this briefing was happening, the week before that, sent over $250 million in aid, humanitarian, military, um, and that was obviously a big feat for them to do that so quick, which they were really pushing. I think now, just like five days ago, they um, approved another 800 million in aid for military. But also the other, the third and kind of the most prominent point to me was why Russia is having a tougher time with this. And it kind of boiled down to Ukraine being more equipped than they um, initially had thought, Russia having like logistic and mechanical issues, and also um, low morale amongst the soldiers. And I actually saw that you had quote tweeted a thread about this. And I think that specifically low soldier morale was very, very interesting to me on the call. Um, and it's really continuing to affect Russia. Yeah, I, I, we can dig into this because the, the thread you spoke of uh, struck me as fascinating. And you imagine uh, an army like the Russian army would consist of uh, people who would be ultra loyal uh, and professional. Yep. But it turns out that a lot of them are conscripts. A lot of them are from... Uh, poor small towns uh, and ethnic minorities. Um, the Twitter thread you described, which was from a Russia scholar, went through, for example, a list of wounded uh, soldiers that had been publicly made available, and over half of the names were from ethnic minorities. And apparently, Russia is an environment where if you do have resources, like let's say you're a college graduate, you can avoid getting drafted. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the the folks who are being uh, sent out there are, are often people who are less educated, less access to resources. Uh, and uh, it, it's not something that that is necessarily being uh, prized or sought after by folks who have the ability to make a choice. Yeah. And how the White House framed it during the briefing, I believe also so in the thread, um, was kind of in part that these soldiers didn't even they still don't initially know like what they are doing there like what their sole purpose is and many didn't even know until the night before that they were going to be invading um so there's that aspect of it so imagine that yeah imagine what are you fighting like you're going to the border and then all of a sudden you're crossing the border and then you're standing with 
you know, with, with your weapons in front of Ukrainians who are fighting for their lives. And you were like, God, oh, like it, I wasn't even told that we were doing this. Yeah, because a, a huge part of like your willingness to fight is obviously like your patriotism towards your country and everything. And like, there's a lack of transparency there. And yeah, so there was that aspect of it. And um, I, I, it's just insane. Like these guys are so young and and to think of like where we're at with culture, with tech and everything, to be honest, like not that a physical war feels outdated. It doesn't in a lot of means, but when it comes to a country like that, that is depopulating um, and just literally sacrificing those who are in yeah, poor positions, it's an insane situation to think about. And it's extremely unfortunate for all parties involved right now. Yeah, that's another part of the analysis, which is that uh, Russia is aging, yep. uh, it's depopulating. And so they don't have a surplus of young men and the young men that are available are being conscripted into service. They're getting paid in some cases, poverty wages. Mm -hmm. uh, and so this Russia observer advised trying to uh, let them know that if they defected, that they'd get a certain amount of money and that they'd have a path out. Um, he estimated that you might be able to get maybe 50,000 soldiers to defect, which, yeah. which would be an enormous uh, amount relative to the size of the Russian force, and then even those who didn't leave would be ex extraordinarily demoralized by watching their compatriots just disappear. So I thought this was a fascinating argument, and it felt true. Yeah, it it felt like okay, if you are like a twenty year old kid from some town in Siberia who mm -hmm. gets conscripted, and then you show up, and all of a sudden you're you know facing people who are defending their homeland. Uh, like if you have the ability to maybe uh, extricate yourself from that situation, it might be something you would very seriously consider. And and, and that would be an enormous win for everybody. Yeah. And I mean, we see in the U U.S. too, obviously, you, people are flocking to urban areas. And that's also what they were saying is happening in Russia, because, you know, back a few decades ago, it was mostly, yeah, the rural families had a ton of kids. And then it was the rise of like birth control and all these different things, which have just added up and also is... Um, has to do part with that depopulation situation and i i mean i don't know if you had seen this because it was kind of, it was not super covered in the media but there was the zelensky um deep fake that was really poor quality i don't did you have did you see that i just knew that it was a deep fake and it was debunked oh yeah it was like super poor quality it did get in their like news articles and like there was on a uh prominent um ukrainian news website it quickly got debunked but it also just it, it shows where also we're heading with warfare. And there was um, two different situations in regard to wiperware, which is a very strong type of malware that the few files can just completely shut down um, the software. It was found a few months ago, the US had found it obviously because the US has been um, like, this has been piping up for the past year. Um, so the US had found it, uh, wiperware in a railway system in Ukraine, which ended up being used for over 1 million of the refugees to get out of Ukraine. And also um, Microsoft had found this try trying to um, target the Ukrainian financial system, which is insane because they were able to end up blocking the code within a few hours. But just a few years ago, probably like three to five years ago, they were saying that would have taken them weeks, if not months. So the fact they were able to detect this stuff so early, like, thank God, but it just shows because of, yeah, these depopulating, depopulation situations, what we're gonna have to be up against, not because maybe people would prefer these cyber attacks, 
but like that's also what countries are going to have to resort to well it's it's clearly the future of warfare yeah. uh and this particular war is playing out on social media with uh one side investing heavily the other side not yeah so if you were to log on to social media you would think that ukraine is absolutely crushing russia because the ukrainians are posting all these videos about uh successful attacks on various tanks and Russians giving up their weapons and uh, being taken captive and a bunch of other things. Whereas the Russian side is not meaningfully investing yeah. in uh, in this form of propaganda because on their side, uh, there's just much less reward. Um, but there there is going to be, I think, an ongoing uh, digital front to all, all of these wars uh, moving forward. Well, also, it's like, Growing up, and I, I still feel this way, and I feel like younger gener generations feel this way, big tech's power is more prominent than that of the governments throughout our lifetime. Like, in terms of influence in our day-to-day -day lives, yeah, like, what's in our face at all times. So, right now, th this Microsoft situation was interesting because what, what we see a lot in the media is a very versus situation between big tech and the government. But it really needs to be cohesive and we are, because we see the top tech talent goes to big tech that doesn't go to the government, which you've actually talked about often. It's just going to be like, how do you even see the relationship between big tech and the government playing out moving forward? Even the CCP is scared of their technology companies in terms of power. Well, uh, at this point, Facebook uh, has billions of users. It's mm -hmm. more vast in its reach than any nation state. Uh, and uh, I think this Russian troop morale situation actually is really important on this point. Yeah. So hear me out. Let's say you're a nation state and you have a standing military. And uh, unfortunately, you're in a time when institutions are faltering and like loyalty towards, let's say, the, the, the state is not what it was. Yeah. And so you still conscript people, you know, in some cases, you know, like, frankly, they're, they're not that um, excited or even willing, but you can script them and then you, you, you send them out. And so then uh, in the old days, I think it might have been ridiculous to say, hey, like, let's just try and get them um, to defect. Let's all like offer them material comforts for them to come over. Because like in most wars, soldiers will not have been open to that yeah. uh, because they were fighting for something that they believed in. Um, and, or there was like a very strong chain of command or a whole other things. But like now in 2022, you actually sense it's like, oh, that could work. Yeah. You know, like the uh, loyalty on the ground could be completely absent. Uh, and, and so if you give them a, a, a choice, they might take it. So there's like this this fascinating dynamic where uh, you have, in my opinion, like uh, uh, Putin who's trying to adopt like uh, an old school war yeah. Um, and and the, the war is awful and immoral and like it, it's heartbreaking to imagine all the people that are suffering and the 10 million Ukrainians who've already fled the country and everything else. Um, but then it, if you were to try and counter it, like you shouldn't take for granted that like that, that there's troop cohesion and the rest of it. You actually should imagine like, wait a minute, like that there like that this might be um, uh, crumbling in ways that aren't clearly evident and, and we can capitalize on it. There was a, another uh editorial that made a similar case which is that the u.s should be accepting defectors from russia and mass um, because there are a lot of russian professionals who want nothing to do with this war yeah uh, and then if they were given a choice to immigrate to the u.s 
that's uh, a real blow to Russia, Russia's economy, Russia's society, uh, and it, it could also increase the pressure um, on Putin. And when I read this, I thought to myself, as an American, I would gladly accept Russian refugees if I thought that it would hasten the end of this conflict. Um, certainly, I think most Americans would gladly accept Ukrainian refugees. I think yeah. that's kind of a no-brainer. But then you think Russia, and, and this goes back to the entire uh, corrosion of these, uh, uh, you know, like notions of uh, of national identity, which is like, you know, do you think the average Russian citizen is excited about this war? I mean, I'm sure some have bought all of Putin's propaganda hook, line, and sinker are super into it, but a, mm -hmm. lo a lot of others would want nothing to do with it. And even if you they don't have strong feelings against the war, if they were offered uh, the chance to uh, defect the United States, some might take it purely um, because they thought they'd have better opportunities here. So uh, I don't know how you feel about that suggestion. But when I read it, I thought like that this makes sense. And apparently the U.S. had adopted similar attacks at earlier points in history where they were accepting, uh, accepting defectors and refugees. Well, I also think we, we kind of moved past it, but your point to that thread about um, the low morale and, and soldiers, you had a really good proposition in regards to that. You were saying to provide them with like 20K in order which to- Which is apparently more than a year's salary for them. Yeah, yeah, which is crazy. So talk to that too. I found that super interesting. Oh yeah, so this was not my proposal. It was this, uh, uh, this proposal someone pitched me. Gotcha. It was a government, so it's a US government official. Uh, and a US government official pitched me because he wanted me to try and uh, popularize it on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, because that's one of the things I'm good for in the world now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Those tweets. Like, well, so if, if there was, you know, if a random U.S. government <laughs> official, they're like, well, I can't put it out there, yeah. but like, let's try and get someone excited about this. Mm -hmm. So the proposal was $20,000 per soldier, 50,000 takers, it's a billion dollars. Uh, and given the billions and billions that are gonna be spent and the tragedies, uh, and the loss of life, like everyone here would be like, shoot, I'd put out a billion dollars to get 50,000 defectors like that. For sure. Heck, even like they're probably human beings who would put out a billion dollars. You know, if you, you were to get like, a, you know, like a Musk or a Bezos or someone and be like, hey, you want to put a billion dollars to mm -hmm. speed up the end of this war? They'd be like, sure, because they, they would do it for humanitarian reasons, but also probably because everyone would love them. Um, and so my mind actually went to how the heck you'd execute on this. It's like if you even had the billion dollar uh, fund set up, it's like, well, you know, how do you communicate to the Russian soldiers that this is a possibility? How do they trust it? Like, where do they go? Um, you know, it, 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 it wouldn't be plausible for them to just somehow like, you know, arrive in the U.S. They'd probably wind up in um, uh, in Poland or one of these countries that, yeah. that that's a more adjacent. So. So those are some of the things, but you should know, like a legitimate government official reached out to me and said, like, hey, this is like something that we should be exploring. It could be something just he felt. Yeah. Um, but I, I thought that it was an idea that really should be out there more, because if there's any chance of it working, it would be funds and time well spent. Yeah, because a huge part also of why people are motivated to fight for their country is money in itself. Obviously, they're not being compensated much if the their opponent is providing that for them and mixed with the low morale seems like an easy situation there to move forward. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, like, I mean, it, hopefully this conflict gets resolved uh, as quickly as it can. But if it, it's continuing on and anyone listening to this is like, you know, that's not a pretty good idea. Um, you know, maybe we should all invest some time and energy on it, trying to, to get this uh, defector encouragement fund.
This podcast is sponsored by ExpressVPN. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that. Private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched, or tweeted. Now imagine all that data being crawled through, collected, and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Do you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell our data? The worst part is you don't know what they're doing. You don't get to have your say. That's why I use ExpressVPN. Just hit one button and then your internet connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server. No one can see your IP address. You're completely in your own private internet. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it harder for third parties to track me and harvest my data. No matter what device you're on, you just hit one button and you get your own protected connection. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com yang and get three extra months for free. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S VPN.com slash Yang. Go to expressvpn.com slash Yang to learn more. I think this all kind of ties into when we're talking about um, big tech moving forward and the role that it, they play in this. Um, I think it's pretty straightforward when it comes to the software interferences and like malware and everything like that, um, how to approach those. Um, what, what gets sticky, of course, and is a huge, maybe, maybe they're buzzwords right now, but a, a continuously growing conversation amongst social media is the misinformation and disinformation situations. Uh, Meta, of course, had to... Uh, step in with a lot of like hacking situations over the past few weeks, which that's again, something that's pretty straightforward in how to approach. Um, but when it comes to messaging, we of course saw last week, the news about Hunter Biden dropped. And so basically New York Times confirmed that the laptop was real, which I think everyone kind of felt that way. It was never confirmed or denied by the Biden administration before like a political article came out about 50 intelligence experts saying that this was Russian disinformation. So obviously we're in the war um, with Ukraine and Russia right now. And as the conversation about misinformation and disinformation grows, and there's a lot of distrust in how the media has covered Russian disinformation in the past, how are you viewing that situation as well? I'm of the mind that, uh, you know, unfortunately, everything is going to be partisan attacks. Yeah. Uh, you know, like uh, in my mind's eye, uh, I never was that attentive to what the heck Hunter Biden might have done because, you Same. know, he's, a, yeah. he's an adult. And like last I checked, you know, like if you have an adult child who's doing something, it's like, you know, it's like um as long as uh, in you know you're not directly there like uh helping them benefit or something along those lines could someone like hunter biden maybe traffic on like an implicit connection like of yeah. course um there are, i'm sure legions of political uh progeny <laughs> yeah. out, out there trading on uh 
uh, on their connections that way, including, of course, like the Trump kids and the rest of it, of um, much more directly. So I, I was always like, this, this is like, you know, something that um, certain people are going to, to be up in arms about and others like are going to look at it. Uh, it. Did I ever think it was true or untrue? Like, I I assumed it was probably true, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I think most did. <laughs> yeah. Or at least there was something mm-hmm. to it, but I didn't like care as much because I didn't think it would affect um, you know, like policies necessarily. It, it does speak to the media environment we're in, though, where uh, at this point, anything that's bad for your team, uh, you, you will attack as, uh, you know, made up misinformation, partisan attack. And, and it's degrading trust for everybody um, because, uh, no, you don't know whether someone's ignoring a story because it doesn't have merit or because it's bad for uh, for their team. Yeah, 100%. I think I'm with you on, I never really paid much mind to the Hunter Biden situation. I remember like, what, the 2008 election, I was maybe middle school or something like that when they were um, really pinning like Sarah Palin on maybe like, it was like her daughter was like pregnant at a young age. I'm like, I understand to talk about the family unit, but to an extent, there's, uh, it's a an individual, they have autonomy and everything. I definitely think with the Hunter Biden situation, it's def- more ingrained in, of course, like foreign affairs in a way, and just like um, obviously his different positions and his jobs and how Joe Biden like uplifted him in those. But I, I, yeah, I, I doubt we're going to see anything come out of this. And the big story to me is just how yeah the media portrayed it, and I'm just interested to hear too like how, why do you think now it, the New York Times came out about it? Why did they feel like now is a good time? I know. They covered it in 2021, even though kind of the news broke about all this in 2020. And they were saying, like, nothing concrete. They they don't, they didn't know what was true and what was fake and kind of like how we're talking right now. And then um, the other day after that article broke, they also there was like an opinion piece um, regarding it's never a good time for the Hunter Biden story. So why do you feel like they felt like this was the time to do so if there's probably not going to be anything coming from it? No, I'd imagine because uh, there was just so much mounting evidence that they looked at it and were like, well, this is going to be out there, so uh, might as well uh, step forward and verify that, yes, we too think that this uh, is real and happened. Uh, uh, And it could also be that there's not an election on and so that their team's not uh, in jeopardy uh, at a given moment um, because... You know, Joe's not going to be on the ballot until 24 if he does run again. Yeah. And to me, too, it was just because I remember Twitter completely suppressed the story and also the New York Post account when they came out with the story back in 2019, 2020. The account was like just couldn't post for two weeks, too, which just that interference in big tech, like completely controlling the narrative of that conversation. And again, I don't think anything's coming from this and I don't think it's a huge story, but it just goes through and a reminder, especially for the younger generation, who's kind of like first seeing that firsthand, that that story had a huge relevance. It was came up in the presidential debates and was quickly shut shut down when Trump mentioned it. They moved on. Um, I think it's all just kind of adds up and feels like legacy media kind of digs themselves and it, for short-term games and like a long-term hole that they're digging ourselves in. And that's, you know, we're seeing journalism move more towards independence. And obviously the younger generation flocks to independence for their media. Um, it's one reason yeah. why I think 
you're so important, Jules, and the people like you, is that I think people instinctively, when they watch you uh, comment on something or create something, it's like, I don't think Jules is, uh, you know, in anyone's pocket. Yeah, uh, because... <laughs> definitely not. Definitely <laughs> not. <laughs> because she's just uh, putting her own stuff out there. Mm -hmm. I think it's one reason why I had a joke, too, when I was running for president where it's like you realize that I'm not part of the machine because there's no way they would send the anonymous Asian guy who wants to give oh. everyone money like that. That's not like that. Their appendage. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and that there are uh, unfortunately at this point uh, are like, you know, tens of millions of Americans who have started to tune out various media sources because they feel like that the, the media has been in the tank for one thing or another. I mean, I, I went through a version of this. So check it out. I run for president. Um, you know, some people uh, get behind me and I'm super grateful and excited about it. Um, and then CNN starts having me on. Um, and then, spelling your name. Uh, well, or wait, wait, no, was it then? No, so no, I, no, I, I was saying like, I, I, like that <laughs> CNN actually calls me up and is like, hey, do you want to comment yeah. uh, on the race? And at first I thought this would be like a two week thing. I'd be like, sure, like I'll show up for a week or two and try and jam some points in there <laughs> yeah. that, that, that I'm into. And then when I showed up on CNN, there were a bunch of people who supported me who were like, oh, like, you know, Yang sold out. Yang's become yes. a corporate shill, et cetera, okay, yeah, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then part of me was like interesting. And then other people were like, oh, you know, you know like Yang will like – um, make use of this mm -hmm. in, in a positive way. Uh, and it, it struck me how so many people just completely hated or mistrusted anything they thought of as like corporate or establishment media. Uh, and, you know, I also see why that is. Um, you know, like I had a positive experience uh, commentating on CNN for the most part. Um, but there, there were people who uh, really started to, uh, you know, attack me over like my agreeing to be on CNN. Yeah. Um, and, and there was part of me, too, that's like, well, shoot, like, uh, you know, how are we going to fix this? Because people now uh, are separating these ideological camps and you have, uh, you know, like a very, fairly limited um, news universe. Yes. And this is one of the things I encountered when I was running for president, where I was like, why are we doing this? Like, and it turns out there are a limited number of games in town. You have the three major cable news networks. You have uh, PBS and NPR, and then uh, like the major news networks, um, or so the major broadcast networks news uh, operations. But they're very limited. Like if ABC News has you on, you're not going to go back on ABC News yeah. for like three months. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, and so. Uh, so then after that, then you wind up in the independent media layer. And then that layer is much more varied and robust. It can include any podcaster that has a significant following. I will also attribute the independent media layer to like, obviously. 98% of my success. Yeah, of your, yeah Completely. 100%. Yeah, it, it's one reason why I, I feel indebted to mm -hmm. so many figures in, in that landscape. And I have a natural affinity for and, and excitement around uh, in, independent media. So there are these folks that are trying to, to make a case um, in different ways and they commingle different forms of content. Um, but there still is this strange like sort of institutional layer 
Um, and it's not based on audience uh, at all. I mean, like the biggest influencers have audiences that are, you know, five, 10 times as large as the average cable news broadcast. 100%. And yet the cable news uh, networks still control like this news narrative in a way that um, I think is, uh, you know, like you can see it weakening somewhat, but then you're not sure uh, when the dynamic shifts. So th this is something that, you know, I, I'm um, investing time and energy in trying to figure out uh, what the alternative can be. Uh, you know, what are the ingredients that make it so that there's like a certain level of credibility for like a CNN news segment that does not hew to, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you name your, like, let's say breaking points. For sure. And um, the Nelk boys had had Trump on for an interview. I didn't get to watch it before it was taken down off of YouTube. But a, a big critique of that, I remember um, Jimmy Kimmel, late night host, um, was like, uh, these small YouTubers, yada, yada, uh, interviewed Donald Trump. And it's like, their YouTube videos get more views than your late night show, which is just crazy for him to boil it down to small YouTubers. I don't think, yeah, I don't think they're credible. I was able to watch like their Candace Owens interview, for example, and the questions were very, you know, surface level lacking in like being tough on her. And I assume that might've been the same for Trump, but I didn't get to watch it. But yeah, the, the these huge media networks, like we saw with how they covered the TikTok White House situation, they're, Tr really trying almost to like uh, be in denial of maybe how it's evolving and like where yeah the power the, is. To oh yeah, the, there's this really interesting dynamic where you have like the legacy media layer uh, hanging on, and then you have this wave of a wave of independent content creators, uh, and there is like a real kind of war on, um, and the independent content creators are winning in terms of audience mm -hmm. and reach. Uh, they haven't gotten there in terms of. Uh, institutional credibility uh, and uh, money. Yes. Um, because most of the money is still hovering in this institutional layer. Yeah, like if, if we can solve for this, uh, then there'd be like a, a, you know, a major shift, in, I think, in the both the media and the political dynamic. It, it's a real problem. I, I'd say it's like a, you know, multi-billion dollar problem because oh, that, that's 100%. like the, yeah, this, the size of it. I have been looking at things that can be done. <laughs> it's been good fun, um, but it, it's a project that requires significant investment and energy. Yeah, because regardless of whether it's legacy media or independent media, no one, neither is like completely wrong or completely right. Within independent media, there's still you still have to play into an algorithm in order to reach your audience. Yeah. And like there, there's, there does, um, there is often strong community, but you're also very much at wounds with the algorithm. Also sustaining yourself with sponsorships, everything like that. Those little things still come in in regards to outside people, outside people infiltrating. But with legacy media, there's of course the checks and balances, which are super important, independent, you have less resources. Within legacy media, traditional media, you have a ton, ton of money behind you, which is good and bad for a lot of differing reasons. Independent media, there's more autonomy, but um, yeah, your stability long-term is harder there. And it's harder to get like really strong people to be able to be stable for the long-term. Oh yeah, it, it's tough. Well, so the, one of the stories that really stuck with me um, was Crystal Ball when she was in MSNBC mm -hmm. and then she criticized Hillary Clinton and then they called her up the office and was like, you have to clear anything you say about Hillary Clinton with us before you say it on air. 
I did not know that. That's absurd. Yeah. And so she said, like, did that influence my uh, coverage of Hillary Clinton? Yes, it did. You know, I mean, she's just being honest. And like, does that sort of thing happen when you have like, like a true institutional layer? Like apparently that stuff mm -hmm. does go on. Um, so that that's one of the things that uh, I think people sense. It's one reason why folks are uh, so dubious, you know, um, uh, there is I have a thesis. I don't know if it's going to come true, but my, my thesis is that people don't trust institutions anymore. People trust people. Uh, and so that they're I going think to that's be reality for at least younger generations. I think that's like completely reality already. Well, so this is one thing I'd love for you to fill us in on is like, what the heck does the future hold? Mm -hmm. Because so the average cable news viewer is uh, between 57 and 65. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about this because it, it's sort of fun. So people looked at that math and thought, oh, snap, like we have to come out, come up with a streaming service uh, that has a different demo mm -hmm. audience. So CNN is invested, I'm sure, tens of millions of dollars in CNN plus uh, because they're trying to go uh, over the top and, and get to folks. Um, now, so the average young person uh, right now, I get the sense that TikTok's their primary information source. Maybe they watch YouTube clips that end up uh, being of uh, Comedy Central uh, or some other I would just ne add, network. Yeah, I would just add there for breaking news, Twitter. Twitter is obviously the first place where things are breaking. So I'd, I'd still say Twitter plays a role there. So, but yeah, TikTok, Twitter. All right, so, so yes, what is the young person's news landscape look like or even their time their media consumption world yeah so i mean your media consumption at, it's been like this for decades really forms your worldview. but in regards to how much time we are spending on screens i think all of us are spending more time on screens than we are outside so your reality is at the whims of these algorithms that you're involved in all day TikTok is specifically super immersive and very curated to your interest whether it's very much your subconscious mind, whether it's good or bad, it's whatever you're giving watch time to. So um, you might think, oh, I don't like this content, but the reason it keeps popping up is because you give it watch time. Even if it's, you're hating on it. Um, you're, you're hate still, watching yeah, it. Yeah, you're hate watching, you're still a fan in some ways in regards to that. So very much getting um, information. You hear that? People are watching me on TikTok. <laughs> you must have watched something mm -hmm. that made you want to see it anyway. Uh, yeah, and um, very dedicated haters are basically equivalent to fans at the end of the day. That's what this algorithm um, really pushes. But um, so TikTok. Um, I'm sure all your fans love you, Jules. I, I, I would say <laughs> friends. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We, like, um, I think we can get to more combo about that. But so yeah, TikTok, what, the information is very pushed to you. Instagram, of course, is based on who you follow. And something that's big on Instagram um, amongst youth are these like infographic Instagram accounts, which you've probably seen. It's kind of like the uh, carousel post of breaking down information about something. They're often run, honestly, by like um, people in their 20s, even high schoolers. Um, so a lot of the information can be a little more uh, emotional driven in a lot of situations. And then Twitter is where you're going for breaking news. Like if any platform is down, if Instagram's down, if TikTok's down, you run to Twitter and you just search, obviously, Instagram down. The thing about Twitter that's um, nice um, and that's harder on Instagram, it's like almost impossible. TikTok, it's harder, is the search function on Twitter. Obviously, because all the content is all words, you're able to search anything and find something in regards to it. 
Um, but what gets scary about all of this is that reality kind of feels like it's often subjective in a lot of ways. Even on Google, you're able to something as simple as um, is the color blue happy or sad? If you type in, I've done this before, I'm like, is the color blue represent happiness? Something comes up. Does, does the color blue represent sadness? Something comes up. You do the straight line approach and it usually comes up with like sadness instead. But how you are searching information, because Google is still a big, huge part of everyone's lives aside from these three social media, um, those three main social media platforms for news. Still, Google is still a huge part of your life and how you go about a Google search has so much to do with what is so said blue back is to sad, you. right? What? Blue is sad. Uh, yeah, blue is sad to me, but you can literally type in, is blue associated blue? with happiness? And something comes up first thing, like an article that does state that. So you can do that with any, that's a very trivial example, but with any type of information, how you search is, is how it's going to come Yang back to cool? you. Um, maybe. <laughs> do the neutral search. Google how do people feel like about Very much maybe. <laughs> very much maybe. So, um, yeah, those three platforms, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram, are the main ways people are, young people are curating their information. And then Google kind of for supporting evidence, but that supporting evidence and how you search can really be, yeah, subjective in how you, the information returns to you. And again, it's form how these kids form their worldview today. What can you project forward based upon what you think that a lot of young people are seeing? Um, so I ran for president, which yeah. you remember well. Um, and it turns out that the vast majority of voters resemble cable news viewers in terms of their age and demo. Mm -hmm. And that's obviously going to change. Yep. Um, you know, a political consultant said to me, like, hey, no one knows what the heck's going to happen in 10 years when these folks age out. Uh, and the folks you're talking about become kind of prime uh, voting age, or not less so. I mean, prime voting age is still a bit older than mm -hmm. Gen Z is going to be in ten years. Um, but what 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 does your crystal ball say uh, in terms of the young people and the worldview you're talking about? So I think we're going. We've been going through a ton of trial and error over the past few years. It's just obviously we've been on social media for, like I said, since I was nine. Probably it's the platforms actually like twelve, thirteen is when I first got on Facebook, for example. But over the past three years, it's become so much more immersive, much in part due to the pandemic and how much time we're spending on it. And we've gone through so much trial and error and yeah, what cancel culture, which I think everyone can agree now is just like not even a thing, more so for people at the very top of like the influencer and con content creator realm. If they get canceled, they end up getting like more followers and more traction because to the point of algorithms, you're then interested in how they're reacting to all of these things and you're paying more attention to them. And if they don't pay any mind to it, then you're more so invested in them. So cancel culture is not a thing anymore, is you're saying? I think it is when in regards to kind of mid-range following and smaller, like you can really just like put someone off the map, which is terrible. But also I've noticed when this has happened to even the mid-range or smaller creators, they'll come back a few months later and people are like interested in like how they've evolved. They might take a break from social media, but then people are so interested in them when they come back. Cause at the end of the day, everyone knows we have all made personal mistakes. Like we're all human. So when these people come back subconsciously, you're thinking about that and you're interested in what they have to offer now after like they've evolved over time, maybe they went off the platform and it ends up like most people I've seen this happen to come back and they are in the same spot that they were in before, if not greater. So I think we're going through a lot of trial and error in regards to that. And because of that, 
um, I think people over the next three years, hopefully sooner, are just going to flock to those who, of course, think critically, do their due diligence in terms of research, but also aren't afraid to uplift uplift the rights of people they typically oppose and also um, uplift the wrongs of people that they typically agree with. At the end of the day, that's what we're seeing people flock to in terms of individuals, and that's what we're going to need because, like I was saying, a lot of the times we feel like reality is subjective because of how much information there is on social media. It's been compounding content over the past few years. You can find something to validate any point, and it's going to be super important to, like, yeah, flock to those individuals. It's harder when it becomes these big media sources because there's all these politics involved also like even in in projects you know like um, sometimes it's easier to do things on your own because when you have a lot of people involved it's like and you're having too many critiques and everything at the end it it affects the end product so people are flocking to individuals because they feel like um, there's more organic and authentic approaches that's one reason why people come to you but continue (laughs) and then um so I think too, it's just gonna be interesting as we see yeah, Gen Z get into leadership in regards to the digital footprint conversation we were having earlier. Yeah, people are just gonna, people do that now with older content, but it's gonna be such immersive and personal content that we have on these candidates from when they were young. It's gonna be really interesting, but I think people are gonna have more empathy in regards to it because we've all grown up so immersed in digital that way. Of course, I think um, older news correspondents um, we're are gonna take single videos maybe out of context and in reality uh, a TikTok feed and Instagram feed um, it tells a story of someone's life and it's kind of um, not that great to take out single short form post because they're off, often out of context with a bigger story. I think people are gonna have more empathy towards it, but it's gonna be interesting to see how that all plays out. Well, that, that's a relatively positive projection. Hopefully, um, yeah. Certainly <laughs> it's, a, it's gonna be a bit of a rocky road there. But if people are searching for rationality mm-hmm. uh, and becoming more empathetic and forgiving of foibles uh, online, I mean, that's a world I can endorse. Yeah, I think every, everyone's exhausted of the current nature. Like, you're, you're, you feel like you're walking on eggshells all the time. You are, feel restraint and maybe being yourself in certain ways because, yeah, all these attackers. And you, everyone at the end of the day knows, and I see this in my comment sections because I uplift these types of conversations a lot, the people who are often in TikTok comment sections or whatever it is, um, trolling, hating, whatever, are people without a profile picture who don't have their name tied to their username. And that's also an interesting conversation. Like in the future, are we gonna see, I think it was Australia that um, proposed that like your driver's license, regardless if you have like a um, pseudonym username or like you're kind of anonymous online, does your, should your driver's license have to be tied to every account? So there is that accountability in regards to these this type of content that you're pushing, whether it's just hateful comments or whatever, there should probably be some accountability. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more of how that evolves. At the end of the day, people, um, I'm seeing more people have disdain towards those who act online that way. Um, So I I honestly have a more positive outlook. I think it just gets scary when it comes to, yeah, how how to decipher what's real and what's fake. Well, I, I think you're attracting the right sort of person, Jules, because of the kind of work that you do. Um, we, we, we have a fascinating media landscape ahead, and I know you're going to be a big part of both forming it and also helping people understand it. So mm-hmm. thank you so much for helping shine light on some of these topics that uh, I know a lot of people are extraordinarily uh, curious about and interested in because they really will shape our future. I completely agree. And yeah, thank you for having me.
Jules Turpak, everyone. <laughs> Follow her on TikTok, Instagram, Twitter. Uh, she's a, a, a voice of reason for the next generation uh, and super grateful to you for being here. Thank you, Andrew. It was great. Yay, Jules. <laughs>